Welcome, everybody, to the uh, Love is Never Wasted podcast. Uh, Nick here. I'm so excited for our guest today. Um, we're a little shorthanded in the, in the host area. Uh, my beautiful co-host, wife, Kara, uh, can't be here today, but what we lack in host, we will make up for in our guest. Um, a lot of you may know Josh Shipp. Uh, he's an incredible human being. He has a truly inspiring story. Uh, such an inspiring person and somebody that I have looked to for a lot of advice and um, in in my journey as a foster parent I've come a long way Um, there's some amazing content online and Josh just has an amazing story and we're gonna I'm so excited for this interview and that he was willing to do this uh, for us Um, and let's get right into it and find out why this incredible uh, man who should have been a statistic is now a success story. So without any more ado, welcome, Josh. Thanks for being on the podcast. Nick, great to be with you, sir. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Who are you, Josh? Well, I mean, as you alluded to, uh, the the spoiler alert is that statistically I should be dead in jail or homeless. Uh, as someone who grew up in the foster care system, that is that is what the odds say about me. A um, little bit of my background: my my biological mother was 17 when she got pregnant with me. I sort of suspect, based on the math, you know, plus nine months that I was probably a prom baby or something. And she was 17. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, of course, had to go through the journey of forgiving her. I don't, I don't hold any ill will towards my biological mother. But at 17, she, um, she left me at the hospital. You know, whatever her reasoning or logic or lack thereof was, uh, the fact of the matter is that I was left. She sort of uh, the way the story was told to me, gave birth to me, packed up her belongings, and a couple hours later, slipped out the side door of a hospital in Oklahoma City. Um, now, obviously, that day as a baby is very tragic, but uh, also, I don't, I don't remember any of that at all. Right. right. But, you know, the moments where the blips kind of start showing up on my radar is, you know, three, four, five years old. So still very young, still very innocent. But I mean, I, I can't overemphasize the chip on my shoulder that I had for adults. Uh, I assumed that every adult that I saw, uh, even though I didn't remember that day that my mother left me, uh, that was sort of the like the Webster's definition I had of an adult in my life. You know, what is an adult? Well, there's someone that leaves you. There's someone that doesn't want to be bothered by you. There's someone where you're a burden, uh, a nuisance. Uh, something to be discarded. Now, again, I don't think that's, I don't think that's hundred percent fair of, first of all, all adults, of course. Right. And, and to be gracious, I don't even think it was fair of my biological mother. Right. But, um, you know, kids that are hurt, uh, they act out in a variety of ways and they define their situation for their own sanity and for their own safety in a variety of ways. Right often in ways that aren't fair. And that's certainly what I did. So I entered the foster care system 
as a baby uh, yeah straight Straight into foster care yep yep straight into foster care and my motive very early on was just you know here's the game either this adult is going to leave me or i'm going to be in charge and i'm going to push them away and i realized that if i could kind of act out push back that then i held the cards Right. Instead of what I felt early on in my life, which was I was just sort of a victim to a circumstance. Something that you've said before, you explained it really. Kids don't like to be hurt. They like to do the hurting because explain that. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, something they can control. Is that what it is? I think so. I mean, I can't speak for all kids that are hurting, but, but certainly for me, it was the case. And and many kids like me who I now work with, it's the case. Uh, you know, what kids don't talk out, they act out. Right. And, you know, as a, for foster kids, as a baby or as a five-year-old or as an 11-year-old, you can go through some really traumatic events and circumstances that even for me today as a 38-year-old man, if I was to go through that again, it would be really tricky and nuanced for me mm-hmm. to kind of process that, work through it, heal, deal with it. I mean, you think about everything that's going on with COVID. It's like, man, this is like, you know, some days are really dark. Some days you feel really discouraged. Some days you feel like, are we ever going to pull out of this? Right. Uh, so if you think about that, and then so much of the trauma that foster kids can go through uh, is so personal, is so uh, vulnerable, striking, so if you, you know, if you think about sort of some of your worst days through COVID, you know, now imagine you're a five-year-old or now imagine you're a nine-year-old, an 11-year-old, uh, a three-year-old, a baby. So what kids don't talk out, they act out. And, and that was absolutely the case for me. And I, and I find this is the trickiest thing as a foster parent is a kid comes into your home uh, and the kid is 14 and you did not cause the last 14 years of his life. Right. You were not responsible right. for the last 14 years of his life. You could not have rescued him <laughs> for the, from the last 14 years of your life. But now the last 14 years of his life is your issue. Right. You know, that kid shows up with, as I did, uh, on the front step of the foster parents that changed my life, which we'll talk about later, but I showed up on their front step, 14 years old, only one piece of luggage in my hand, but, but tons and pounds and pounds of emotional luggage and baggage Hmm. that they didn't cause that is now their issue. And, you know, as someone who works with foster parents, foster kids, I find that is such the mental challenge because you can begin to blame yourself for their acting out that isn't about you. It's about someone who came prior to you. You can begin to think, well, man, I'm not good at this or I'm not getting through to them or I just don't have what it takes or they don't like me or they're not responding to me or no matter what I do, it doesn't seem to be getting through there is sort of this period where they kind of have to, particularly the older they get, they kind of have to act out on you a bit. Right. 
they, they kind of flip out a little bit. Um, now kids either flip out or flip in. So some will just go very <laughs> inward okay. and they'll just like shut you out emotionally. It's not quite as hostile as like a kid like me was, you know, I right. would tell you to go F off. Right. Another kid might just kind of go in the room, not engage. Right. But there's kind of this period where a kid is either going to flip in or flip out on you. And so much of the game as a foster parent is to uh, psychologically survive that period. Uh, you know, love them through it, have consequences through it. You, you don't want to withhold love just because the kid is sort of a handful. You also don't want to let them run over you just because the kid is a handful and you feel, you, felt, you feel sorry for what they went through previously. And I find if you can survive through that, not take it personally, not internalize the baggage that does not belong to you. Right. Then you can get into that area of influence where it's like, it's like, I, I can, you know, even like Mike Tyson, he can only box for so long. Right. He can only throw punches for so long and then he's going to get worn out. And then there's that opportunity to influence. So how do they survive it? What are the, yeah, great question. Um, let, let me let me wrap up my sort of sob story. With okay, the yeah, and then and then we'll get into that. Yeah, let's let's. And then I'll and then I'll story. answer that question directly. Okay. How do you survive it? So I, I went through a, like a dozen different foster homes. Like, no joke. I know this sounds funny now, but I kept a notebook with a score of how quick I could get kicked yeah, out. Yeah, I've heard this story. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it is funny now, and there's certainly nothing wrong with laughing about it. Um, but it's also just kind of messed up of how desensitized I was to hurting well-intended foster parents, to acting out on adults who did nothing wrong to me. Mm -hmm. uh, so at 14, you know, I show up on the front porch of Rodney and Christine Wiedemeyer. And my, my high score at that point in the notebook was two weeks. <laughs> but tell us, tell us specifically about the notebook. You had... Do you have three things that you kept in the notebook? Yes, I, I was very nerdy even at that age. So three columns, column one, the date I entered the home. Right. Column two, the date I was kicked out. Right. Column three, the methodology. The method. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> this yeah. one works about 30% of the time. This totally. one works with this person. This one works with this type. Like you had it yes. dialed. You were dialed in. Yes. I was absolutely tracking conversion rate. <laughs> you know, uh, See, right. If you studied finance, it looked a bit like that sort of logbook. <laughs> uh, so I moved in with them at 14, just thinking, well, these people should be easy. I mean, you know, let me let me shoot for 10 days here. Let me shoot for a week. Let me beat my high score. And as I sort of described to you, their ability to have consistent encouragement and consistent consequences through the two years of me literally putting them through hell was incredible. I would, you know, I would, of course, be mouthy to them, tell them to F off. I would be really rude, cruel. My foster dad was and is shaped like a lowercase b. He was an <laughs> overweight man. Mind you, I was overweight when I moved in with them, so I did not even see my own hypocrisy. Mm. You know, I would make fun of his weight. I would find their possessions and set them on fire. I mean, really kind of cruel, messed up stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was always with them consistent encouragement and consistent consequences. Uh, 
eventually I got thrown in jail for a night because I wrote some fraudulent checks. Yeah. And I thought, okay, this will be the moment where they get rid of me. This is their breaking point. Yeah, I've made this real easy for them. Like, they don't even got to come pick me up. It's just like, call the social worker. Right. Hey, you go get him. You know, we did our best. Uh, but I remember that morning uh, out in the lobby, Rodney was one of the first people standing in line. Wow. It's, I mean, so much of my childhood, you could probably empathize with. I've kind of blocked out. But that, that is an image I can never, ever erase from my mind. Just him out there, the lowercase b in, in its full glory. Uh, he was wearing this, like, yellow shirt, so it just stuck out. It just really What do you think out. you expect? You just expected not to see him? No, I, uh, I absolutely expected to wake up and see my social worker, Patsy. To take you to your next placement? That's, yes. Or when I woke up, that's home. whose face I was scanning for. Wow. I, w I was scanning for the, f the face of Patsy. Right. Uh, she's going to be out there and, you know, get back in the van and let's just go through the whole rigmarole that I, that I know quite well at that point. Mm -hmm. um, they bailed me out and, you know, kind of had this come to Jesus moment, this like, listen, kid, you can keep trying to push us away and you can keep acting out and you can keep trying to get us to give up on you. But but we don't see you as a problem. We see you as an opportunity. We're not going anywhere. Uh, and we love you no matter what. No matter what. And that was a moment, even as a kid who was so hard-hearted, so skeptical, such a cynic, such a chip on his shoulder, so much baggage in his life, uh, so many bad things that had happened to him, but also so many stupid things now he was choosing as a 14, 15-year-old kid that should have known better. That moment really cracked my heart open. That moment really, that was the moment I talk about where okay, these foster parents aren't just giving me lip service, aren't just saying the polite, nice, right. you know, these are Oklahoma people, you know, the nice sort of Midwestern, you know, sort of lip service. Um, they really meant it. And, and that was that moment that I talk about where now the influence was full force. Now I let them in. Now I began to really open up my heart to them. Um, because I realized that they did love me no matter what. That I tried my darndest to push them away and that it wasn't going to happen. Uh, I can't overemphasize enough. This doesn't mean you, you don't have boundaries. Yeah. Okay? This, doesn't, this yeah. doesn't mean you let a kid break all the rules because you, you love them no matter what. That's, right. that's not love. That's being... Uh, that's letting them run over you. That's that's not healthy for you. Like you, you as a parent will go insane if you allow that to happen. Separate the action from the individual type thing. That's right. Yeah. I mean, there there were there was firm boundaries in the home, but there was also unwavering love. Yeah. And let's circle back to your question. How do you how do you get there without? As a as a as a foster parent, as exactly yeah, somebody as a foster that's parent without either 
that is a foster parent or thinking about being a foster parent because you just explained, you know, you're bringing kids into your home that have years and years and years of stuff that is now your stuff and they're scared of that or people are, or foster parents are realizing this is what I'm I'm handling now and you mentioned survival is the f- yeah. first step. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really easy to to, to be inspired by watching a movie like Instant Family and be like, all right, that's it, you know. <laughs> Not to derail the conversation, but what did you think of that movie? It, it, oh, it was like, I loved it. I thought it was... We loved it too. Did you... I thought it... Pretty accurate, right? Some, some foster care movies don't have enough sort of chip on the shoulder. It's like kind of too glossy. Uh-huh. I felt this was perfectly kind of... Uh, frank and yeah. like the brutal honesty of what it can yeah. be like yeah. but also beautiful and redemptive and hilarious yeah so funny i loved it and so many things that that care and i relate to in that movie with our with our foster children and our biological children so it's in anyways yeah but you can watch a movie like instant family or i i know you and your wife are masters at the propaganda of come on be foster parents join us and you can and that can and i think that's beautiful and can be very inspiring right and then you get into it and you're like man yeah, yeah. this is whew, mm-hmm. whew. yeah we try to we try to you know show all of it you know our one thing i always say is our experience has been truly amazing we've got two wonderful uh, foster kids who are now our children and there have there have been struggles, um, but everybody's experience is different. But the one thing that I guarantee everybody is, no matter what happens, no matter what your experience is, is you will make a difference. You will have an impact in the life of a hurting child. And to me, I don't know that there's a uh, a greater calling than that. Yes, and you will often have an impact before you realize you've had an impact. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, as an example. So this moment I'm describing to you, you know, post getting bailed out of jail, you know, where I said my heart kind of opened up to this family. I was 17 and a half. I did not formally thank them and tell them what a pivotal moment that was until I was 24. Really? So I moved in with them at 14. So, so many times these moments are happening and you don't realize it. So, right. so now let me close the loop on your question. How do you keep the endurance as a foster parent or someone who's thinking about it? Uh, well, what I saw my foster parents do is that they did not judge how effective they were on my daily emotional swings. Okay. Uh, what they did is they intentionally got together roughly once a week with a few other foster parents. Okay. You know, you could do this in person, you could do this on Zoom, you could, there's a variety of ways in which you could do this. And they just like hung out for an hour, had a beer, had a coffee, mm-hmm. depending on the time of the day, and just told the stories. <laughs> What's going on in your, in your house? And if someone would tell a story that was really heartbreaking, Uh, I've had these conversations now with my parents, my foster parents. Uh, I remember them saying that even when someone would share a story about a really rough week, that my foster parents found it oddly 
hopeful and inspiring because they thought, thank God I'm not alone in this. Interesting. Like I'm not the only one having a difficult week. Uh, and then maybe some other foster parent would kind of share a, like a little bitty breakthrough. Like, mm. like you know, my, my son didn't tell me this directly, but he told his teacher this thing that I said to him, mm -hmm. which means like, oh my gosh, he's listening to me. Mm -hmm. And that gave me so much hope. And so then again, as a foster parent, you go, okay, there is hope like this, mm -hmm. this will eventually take. Because I think if, if you are going to judge how you are doing in real time, based on the, the acting out, the emotional swings of a foster kid, let alone any 14 year old. I mean, right. Let's be honest. Right, right, right. You know, kids can be so up and down. Kids are kids, yeah. That that will cause you to lose your endurance, take your foot off the gas, and question whether or not you are being effective when indeed you are. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of times, like you mentioned, the movie, you know, what are the reasons you're doing it? You know, are, are, are you... Uh, are you looking for a way to add a storybook, something to your family? Are you looking for, you know, um, if you're looking for immediate gratification and immediate uh, justification that you're a, you're a great parent, you're going to be disappointed. Um, and it's interesting to hear what your foster parents did. And it seems like you're saying they needed first the support, the feeling that they're not alone, and then a little bit of hope. And that kind of fueled their ability to wait it out and survive and I think a lot of people who are thinking about doing it and maybe who don't or on the fence or whatever kind of feel like I just could never do it because I'm not qualified let's talk about that for a minute what what are the qualifications I, I like to think I mean when my wife came home five years ago and said, hey, we need to be foster parents. It, it was shocking to my system. We had talked about adopting later on in life, right? I was like, yeah, that'd be great. We'll get, you know, we'll go, it'll be cute. It'll be our last kid. It'll be, you know, we'll go get a kid that nobody wanted and, and then we'll get all this attention for it and it'll be great. And, you know, she just fast forwarded and said, she felt really, really strongly. She felt the the hand of God telling her this is what needed to be done and there were people that needed to be added to our family now and I didn't even really know about foster care and she got me to go to one of the classes I had a whole bunch of really good reasons as to why we shouldn't do it you know we're growing our family we've got our own kids we're we're, we're growing a business we're we, we already don't have time she got me to one of the classes and I learned what the kids in our own community are up against and the way that some of these kids are being treated I grew up in a perfect house I grew up with unbelievable parents I grew up not knowing of of some of the things that go on and when I learned about that I that it completely changed me and it went from something that I was one, running away from that to something that I literally had to run towards and then Along the journey, I found out that I was capable of so much more than I thought I was capable of because it really comes down to patience, unconditional love, and 
pretty much just doing whatever my wife tells me to do because she is so good at those things. But what are the, you know, share with our listeners, you know, what, yes, it is hard, but why is it also not something that's unattainable and not, not above and, and with on their reach? Well, I mean, of course there are some formal uh, requirement. You can't have, you know, you can't have samurai swords laying around your house or those sorts of things. Of course, you gotta, <laughs> gotta put those away. But I mean, to me, it comes down to, do you have a heart and do you have a home? If you got a heart and a home, even an apartment, yeah. uh, you know, you're qualified. There's, it, you know, to me, this is why all of the work that I do now as an adult centers around the idea that every kid is one caring adult away from being a success story. Yeah, I love that. And to me, that's not just sort of an inspiring quote. That's, that's, that's my story, you know, because of Rodney and Christine, these mm-hmm. uh, folks in Yukon, Oklahoma, who took chance on this kid. My life's forever different. And it's the story of countless young people who have either been fostered or adopted who needed someone to take a chance on them. And uh, I did uh, my postgraduate studies at Harvard and they have an institute there called the National Scientific Council on the Developing Child. And they did a study of kids who have been through difficulties, uh, different adversities. And uh, it's almost like they were trying to rip off my quote. Here's what they found. They said, every child who winds up doing well has had at least one stable and committed relationship with a supportive adult. Wow. Everyone. So when we talk about, you know, what does it take? Uh, it, it takes being stable and, and being committed to that kid, which to me, when I reflect back as someone who now has my own kids, as someone who now works with foster kids and foster parents, it comes to me, it comes down to consistent encouragement and consistent consequences. If you can give a kid both of those things, uh, and the research shows as, as humans, we tend to default kind of more naturally towards one or the, one or the other. Right. Uh, and so with one of those, you're going to have to be intentional and strategic right. to get it in. With the other, it's going to come quite easy and quite naturally to you. For me, the consistent consequences is a very easy thing because, A, I was a kid who caused trouble, so I can kind of anticipate that's how I am. That's how I'm wired. Yeah, I can anticipate some of the maneuvers. And as you would sort of uh, deduce from the notebook I kept as a child, I'm, you know, I like to be sort of organized, methodical, strategic. So, you know, in our home or the kids that I work with, I mean, we literally have signed contracts. It's like, here are your <laughs> privileges. Here are the rules. Here are the premedit- premeditated consequences when you inevitably break a rule, because I know you will. Nobody's getting Josh because Josh knows all the tactics. You, well, you know what they're I, thinking before. They'll still they're... get me. They will still get me. But <laughs> this is my illusion that I, you know, that I've got him beat. But for me, genuinely, the consistent encouragement uh, that does not, by default, come natural to me. So I have to, you know, I have, I have literally alerts uh, in my iPhone calendar. Really. To to, you know, say certain things to, uh, you know, to ask either one of my own kids or a kid that I'm, you know, just check in on their heart. Uh, because 
though I want to be about that, and, and it does matter to me, it's not my natural default. And so, you know, if we have a weakness in our life, which we all do, wishful thinking is not a strategy. You can't just hope that you're going to improve at that thing. Mm-hmm. You have to admit, hey, I don't naturally, I'm not that great at that. So, right. But I can systematize it and set up something uh, to work around my weakness and be good at something that I want to. And so for some of you, that will mean, you know, you got to get a little better at the at the consequences side of things. Right. You know, there's no problem with the, the love, the encouragement, this and that. Because uh, all the research shows that if a kid is is deprived of either of those things, uh, that that they're not going to thrive, that they're not going to become that success story. And frankly, so many kids who are in foster care, you know, we think that they're just deprived of love, but they're actually deprived of the consequences side of things, which becomes the structure, the safety, the scaffolding for their life to begin to kind of let down some of those chips on their shoulders and some of those fears that they understandably have. Right. So how do you do that in an appropriate manner while still showing the unconditional love? Because, you know, anger can't be part of it, correct? You know, the boundaries. I mean, I guess you can feel it yourself. You shouldn't beat yourself up if you get angry. I mean, you're going to. To me, this is why I I genuinely do encourage pre-med, like every battle is won before it's fought. You are going to have conflicts uh, with your kids, regardless whether they're biological kid, adopted kid, foster kid, uh, or if they've been a perfect angel since the age of five, like inevitably (laughs) there is something coming. So to me, I do encourage writing down, you know, for your family, what are the privileges, what are the rules, and what are the premeditated consequences? Uh, Here's the importance of the premeditated consequences. It helps someone like me who tends to flip out and I'll like over punish or I will yell or I will like, I'll go overboard. Right. Uh, Or it helps someone like my wife who is more likely to kind of flip in and go, I don't want to deal with this, I've already, you know, I've had a rough day already. Right. Or, you know, I don't want the conflict. It's not that big of a deal. This will just sort of naturally sort itself out. And neither of those are helpful approaches. <laughs> so if the consequence can be premeditated and right. written down, right. number one, your kid knows what's coming, which gives them a sense of safety. Right? If, if I tell you uh, Nick, hey, I'm going to meet you on Zoom at nine o'clock for our podcast interview, and I show up at nine, that, that is depositing a little bit of trust with you, Nick, that like, hey, this, you know, if Josh says he's going to be there at nine, he's going to be there at nine. Right. Uh, and similarly, if you say to your kid, like, hey, I'm going to show up to your sports event, to your game, to your theater event, or, hey, if you do this stupid thing with your cell phone, uh, I'm going to take it away for a week. And uh, we got a flip phone that I still have from high school, and I'm going to give you that. <laughs> uh, but for a week, uh, no smartphone. Right. Even by doing that thing, as long as it's premeditated and it's clear, it, that helps the kid. That helps someone like me who would be like, 
technologies of the devil. I'm getting rid of it all. We're going off the grid. The hell with Wi-Fi. No one's having a smartphone. I'm getting you all the Zach Morris brick phone. Got it. Got it. You know, that's where I would go if, if it wasn't premeditated. Or my wife would, you know, just sort of ignore it because she doesn't want the conflict until it escalates into something like, you know, quite bad or could escalate into something quite bad. So I think that's something practically you can do is look back, you know, are there sort of some reoccurring fights or conflicts or things you're having problems with when things are calm, not when things are heated, when things are calm, uh, you know, like if you had a big blow up today, don't try to do this today. Like give it a couple days, right? Let things calm down. Right. Uh, and then just sketch out, you know, look, the cell phone is a privilege. Uh, you know, as long as you do these things we expect, here are the rules around it. Happy for you to have it. Uh, in the event you break one of these rules, here are the premeditated consequences. Right. Great advice. It sounds like uh, your dynamic is very similar to our dynamic. I'm, I can relate with everything you said about yourself and, and the reactions. And um, probably the hardest thing is is what you said is I beat myself up over the 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 anger, and I wish I could be. I mean, this works because of my wife. This works because of her undying, unconditional love. But I, you know, I guess I have to give myself a little bit of credit too because I come with that other side of it. Um, the consistency. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, uh, people just think, oh, they just need, they just need love. They just, just love them back to health. But there is that other side of it, uh, the boundaries. And one thing that I always say too, is it's, if I'm talking to people to be foster parents, um, you know, what, what to expect or, or why they can do it is, you know, it's just be home every night, be home every night, um, be there every morning that is something that's so simple to people, you know, like us, that these hurting children have probably never experienced. Or to your point, you know, every every success, you know, every kid is one caring adult away from being a success story. It took 14 years in your situation. Well, I don't know, maybe... maybe it took me, I think, even longer than that before you realized that Rodney actually cared about you. And and so it really took, I, I think you were 17 when, when that happened. Um, just the fact that he showed up, he was there, he was consistent. That's, that's all it takes. I, I want to, I want to throw something at you. And I may, I have some statistics here, and you may or may not, I assume you have all the stats memorized in the industry. But um, one thing that we're trying to do here with our foundation is, you know, get the word out, inspire people to be, you know, run towards the, the problem, be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And the solution we believe is foster care. And with the solution we believe is flooding the system with happy, healthy homes and, and, and parents who are, who are looking to, as yourself, fight for these kids. Um, I looked up some numbers, and I think there's around 400, 450,000 foster kids in the U.S. Would that be accurate? 
and somewhere around the neighborhood of 200,000 licensed foster homes. It, it, it seems to be growing, which is encouraging. I think um, there's more homes licensed foster parents in 2019 than there were in 2018. But it's still a kind of a two-to-one, you know, outnumbered kids to homes. Um, and, you know, I, I've estimated anywhere from 120 to 150 million households in the U.S., and if we want to flip those numbers, if we want to get at least even or maybe a two-to-one in the other direction to where social workers have the ability to be selective and find, rather than just go with the first, you know, oh, I, I found a family that'll take this kid, you know, or where siblings can stay together. So basically outnumber the amount of kids in the system with licensed foster parents. We're only 250,000, 200,000 licensed families away, but there are 130 million households in the U.S. You would think that we could find another three, four hundred, two, three, four hundred thousand homes in the U.S., and we could really make a difference in the lives of hurting kids. What do you think? Do you think that's a, I mean, that's our goal. Our goal is to flip those numbers. Are we, are we, is that something we can do? I think that's an incredibly pragmatic an inspiring way to approach it. I love the idea that a social worker would have options, choices. You know, they would be able to place a kid in a home considering that foster parent's strengths and where that kid is coming from and, you know, more accurately sort of match a kid with a family that their strengths fit the kid's need. Right. Uh, You know, I've found if someone is thinking about foster care, uh, I mean, you already know it. I don't have to persuade you about it. You know it. It's been rattling around in the back of your mind. Uh, But there's a hesitancy. You're hesitating uh, for some reason. And I would say to jump in, to give it a shot, to take in a kid, to make a difference uh, in that kid's life because you will never know the impact that you are going to have on the life of a kid until you bring that kid in. And, you know, I can tell you that the places that a kid like me lives between placements is even colder, um, less personal. Uh, You know, it's, it's really like, um, I mean, this sounds borderline vulgar, but it's almost like a dog pound. You know, there's just sort of a group of kids and you're living there and you're just waiting. Yeah. And if you're a kid like I was, that's 14 or 11, eight, you're not the cute little puppy anymore. Right, right. You know, you got a, you got a few scars, you got a few bumps or bruises. Uh, you know, those kids in particular need someone that will take a shot on them, that will take a chance on them, that will uh, invest in them and and in their future. Right, right. There's, my wife tells a story where she read a story, this is before we were foster parents, it really I think kind of pushed her over the edge. She read a story about a, uh, a little girl who was in a group home and every time, you know, pr- prospective foster parents would show up to potentially, you know, adopt or or foster, she would make sure she 
put on her best dress. She would do her hair. She would try to present herself the best so that they would pick her. And, you know, it sounds dramatic. It sounds, but it's real. And it just, I think it just, it touched her in a way where she thought, you know, I just can't believe that there are kids out there who don't have someone to take care of them when they're sick, to hear about their bad day at school, to, you know, that there was this girl making this effort to try to look attractive enough to have a home. And you can't deny the statistics. They're, they're outnumbered for the, from the homes that are available for them. And um, I think maybe I wanted to mention something that I heard your Rodney say. Um, he said, and maybe you can maybe you can fill in where I where I miss this, but he said God doesn't make mistakes. He says there's good in everyone, and sometimes it just takes a little more reaching to find it, but you you just can never give up. Yeah, I mean. You know, I think about that little girl, and if we peel back even a layer further, you know, why does she feel the need to get dressed up, present herself? It's because somewhere in her mind, even at her young age, she thinks, as I thought as a kid, if I was better, cuter, smarter, someone would want me. Mm. Um that there's something wrong with me. All right. That's why, you know, so-and-so hurt me or so-and-so got rid of me or so-and-so didn't want me. Uh, you know, it's in that girl, I hear the savviness of a foster kid that has to learn how to adapt and, right. and do what it takes. Uh, and also such a, such a sadness that a kid would think, that they are not enough as they are right. and that there's something broken about them. Um, I mean, you're right. There's over 400,000 plus foster kids and, you know, I was one of them and I thought it was something about me that, that I was unlovable, that I was all alone, that <laughs> no one would ever want me. And, uh, I mean, Rodney and Christine getting their, over their own skepticisms or fears or concerns or uh, their own busy schedules, their own, they had their own biological kids. Uh, you know, this, this was not convenient for them. This was not the easy choice for them. But I know if I look back over my own life, Almost everything that's meaningful is not easy, and almost everything that's easy is not meaningful. Yeah. Well, thank you, Josh. I really appreciate you you being here. And um, one of the my favorite things that you you say when talking to prospective foster parents is, you know, you say the difference between a stat and a success story is you. And uh, I really appreciate that message. Thanks so much for, for coming on the show, um, the podcast here. Um, look up this man on YouTube. He's, there's a tremendous amount of uh, stuff there, um, not just for foster parents, but for parents. You know, how to talk to your teenagers about all kinds of issues that they're, 
that they're up against, which we know they're up against a lot in today's world. Um, your uh, website, joshship.com. I know you've written two books. Um, you can find all that information on your website, I, I, I suppose. Thank you so much for being a, a, a friend of the, the podcast, a friend of ours, and um, such a tremendous and inspiring person. We really appreciate it. Nick, thank you, good sir. My pleasure. All right, everybody. Thanks for uh, listening. Um, be sure to uh, head to the website, uh, loveisneverwasted.org, Instagram, uh, love never wasted. And um, comment below uh, on the podcast, give us a rating, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.